Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with the Sprouski, I'm a boss. That got me thinking. I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about external validation. I've been thinking about coercion, manipulation, and authentic communication. I've been thinking about listening and loving and allowing ourselves and others to be who and where we are. My guests today are Bill Sticksrud, Ph.D., and Ned Johnson. They are the national best-selling authors of The Self-Driven Child and the follow-on communication guide, What Do You Say? How Do You Talk With Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home? Bill is a neuropsychologist, and Ned is a test prep guru. Welcome, Ned and Bill, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Happy to be here. So I want to start with what brought you two together and, and what were your individual paths um, getting together and getting to these fields. One reason I want to do that is then listeners will be able to identify who's who's when you're talking. Mm-hmm. Sure. They'll, they'll sure. know which, which is Bill or Ned. Okay, thanks. Bill, you want to uh, start? This is, sure. Okay. This is Bill. And um, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and I make a living uh, testing kids and, and teenagers and young adults who have learning problems or emotional problems or social problems or attention problems. And I try to figure out what's working, what's not working, and how to help them. And I also have been studying and, and writing about and lecturing uh, about a number of things the last many years, including motivation and how stress affects people's uh, a kid's development. And I just kept hearing about this, this test, this young, much younger than me, test prep guy who, who thinks a lot like I do. And it has a lot of the same concerns. And, and Ned and I were introduced, and we started lecturing together initially about motivation and stress. And eventually, uh, we, we spent a lot of time together and thought, Let, let's write a book. And so we, we collaborated on our first book, The Self-Driven Child. I, I just want to comment on your introduction for a second, Bill, just because the things you named about you work with childs who, and I thought, okay, is that every child pretty much in America these days? <laughs> well, the, certainly the the uh, the incidence of emotional problems is is kind of off the charts. And actually, Ned and I were talking with the head of all the childhood anxiety and depression research at NAMH a few months ago. And I asked him, is, is it really true that there's this epidemic of anxiety and depression in young people? Is well, with anxiety and depression, it, it, it's a little hard to tell because people measure it different ways. Because what's incontrovertible is the, the dramatic increase in comp- completed suicides, even in, in, in kids as young as five. Um, and so we're, we're, talking, we're talking about a lot of stress-related mental health problems that, that have been worsened by COVID. Um, but pre-COVID, we're just kind of um, just off the charts. Well, yeah, and you look at these kids' uh, Snapchats or Instagrams, and they are filled with faces of um, anxiety and tears. Yeah. It's really yeah. wild. Okay, Ned, you're There's on. something wrong with this picture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, so, so, so I'm a test prep geek, right? I've, I've been helping kids prepare for and, and sort of battle an alphabet of standardized tests since 1993, and um, sort of as Bill points out, you know, it certainly feels that uh, things are, have, have gotten progressively more challenging in, in terms of stress. And the way that I kind of got into this, apart from my friendship with Bill, is it sort of dawned on me some while back that it, that it wasn't enough to just make sure that the right stuff was in kids' brains when they go to take a test. If under too much pressure, they didn't know how to handle the pressure sufficiently, they, they kind of lose their minds. And so... I just all the time have students saying or parents saying, I don't understand. She's so smart. He's so capable. How can these scores? As though cognition is just a light switch and you're either, you you either got it or you don't. As though stress and anxiety and sleep insufficiency and distractions and all these other things that can be part of anyone's life, as those, as though those don't have some impact on how well brains can, can, can work under, under pressure. So, when Bill and I were talking about, let's write this book, Bill sort of asked me, you know, what do you think the organizing principle is? And I said, it, it seems to me that everything we're talking about is increasing the, the sense of control the kids feel. Um, because, you know, when, when, we, when we feel a lack of control, our brains just don't work very well. And so if we can increase that sense of control, everything from being well rested to being well prepared, then people do better when, when, when they need to. 
So as you're speaking, I, I had remembered this prior when I saw your name and started reading the book that I had heard about you. And I love that Bill had just heard about you too. You're just there floating in the ethers above us all. Um, that I had read about you in Paul Tuff's most recent book. And as you were talking, oh, yeah. I was thinking about an example that he gave of something you had done where you brought in for one of the students a um, uh, um Peloton bike, or you know, a stationary bike. Soul cycle. Yeah, soul, soul cycle. cycle. It, was, it was absurd. It was yeah. This so yeah. This was funny. So this was the girl who went to uh, an Orthodox Jewish school here in in, in, in Silver Spring. And I mentioned that because you know these these kids. This kid was super academic, and she had all the usual class of math and science and, and, and English and history, but also you know, Judaic studies and, and Hebrew. And so she had like nine classes. And so she just pulled in a thousand directions and was just wildly underrested and wildly stressed. And I, I think I was her third SAT tutor. And, and she ended up, so, so she came with me and, and, and I pretty quickly figured out, this is a kid who's really academic. She's a great school, great family. And these tutors she worked with before also really knew their stuff. Her issue wasn't, you know, more practice and more tests, but, but trying to trying to kind of ameliorate a little bit some of the pressure that she felt she was under. So I started early on and was sort of relentless in trying to help her be more well rested, knowing that that would improve her her thinking. But I just I, I just I wasn't <laughs> the lessons weren't taking. She wasn't going to she, she just couldn't bring herself to change that in part because I think she was so stressed that. If she if she if she slept rather than study, that that must be a terrible thing to do. So she was going to take a uh, an, an an ACT the following weekend, and she had to get a, she had to get a thirty two. Otherwise, her her cousin or college counselor wouldn't let her apply to her dream school. And I thought, well, that's nuts. And so she wanted to take one more test. And I said, I said, no, no, you crack addict, like no more tests. You know, let's <laughs> let's, let's focus on other things. No, 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 I must, I must. I said, okay, fine, but you can only come and take this test if you find some way to blow off some scene first so your head is in a better space. And so, well, what, what, I said, okay, is there anything you do for exercise? And she goes, oh, yes. And she, so she runs off to take a soul cycle class bright and early on, late Monday morning, and comes to my office, a great part of soul cycle. Of course, you pay 40 bucks for a bike ride, you don't even get a towel. So she shows up all sweaty, right? sits down, takes the test, gets the 32 that she's been told that she needs. And she's like, this is it. And we've got our solution. Woohoo! The only small problem, the wrench in the works, is that her, SA, her ACT that following Sunday starts at 8 o'clock. And the first soul cycle class on Sunday morning starts at 8 o'clock. Now she's out of her mind. Just like it was like <laughs> a, we were about to walk out of a, an airplane, but, but I'd just taken her a parachute. I mean, she's just like, <gasps> and so I'm trying to, look, it's not about the bike. We can run up and down your drive. There's no convincing her. So I foolishly say, okay, fine. I will figure this out. I, I will find you a class. She's like, do you promise? And I foolishly said yes. And then spend two days trying to find some place to, and, and to no avail. And a friend finally said, what you need is a trainer. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I'll give you two bikes, these kind of like a stationary, like a treadmill for bikes. And I show up at her at her house at 6 or 6.30 or something absurd. Sunday morning, we get the music and the soul cycle and the candles. She blows up steam, goes in and takes the test. And now she's at her dream college. And it was she sent me this wonderful email later, and then in part with lots of thank yous, but also, you know, that I, I finally understand that sleep and exercise and managing my stress are just as important as the hard work that I'm doing, you know, in, in school. And so that was, that was worth it. <laughs> well, yay, loud clapping and confetti pouring <laughs> everywhere. And, I'm, and not just for the, the fact that that was a success, but what amazing lessons you taught her and supported her in learning and the fact that, okay, let's problem solve. How can we figure out like, what is the disconnect yeah. here and then solve for it and that people in my life will support me in doing that. It's just just really wonderful. It was a fun story. I was really grateful for Paul. I mean, you know, there, there, there are a lot of other stories you can tell about test prep people. And yeah. the, the idea that, that to, your, to your point, that some of the messages were taken away rather than, you know, plug in numbers or, you know, here's yeah, how to do yeah. the quadratic formula. <laughs> so in, in the title, you use the word with, and I, I love that you chose that word rather than to. And maybe we could just start off by talking about a little bit of the mm. difference in speaking with someone versus to them. So, so this is Bill, and so often, you know, we I, I talk with parents who say, "God, I told him a million times. I keep trying to tell him," and and you know, if, if, 
if your message doesn't, what you want to communicate to your kid doesn't land the first time or the second time, it's not going to land the 10th time or the 20th time or the 50th time. And so uh, we wrote this book in, in part because Ned and I spent so much time. I, I, t- I talk with both children and teenagers and young adults, and Ned has this specialty with 16 and 17 year olds. But we just spent countless hours talking with kids and trying to find ways to connect with them. And it's interesting, Ellie, that we um, we talked to a bunch of kids, dozens of kids, high, high, mainly high school kids, um, prior to writing this, this why we were writing this second book, this What Do You Say? And we asked them, who do you feel closest to? And invariably, they said, somebody who, who listens and doesn't judge me and, and somebody who doesn't tell me what to do. And it, which is very consistent with what we found in, in terms of um, we, in terms of skillful communication, so much of what Ned and I try to do is get buy-in. We, we, we try to, we want to offer, and we have a lot of experience and oftentimes good advice. We want to offer it to, to, to young people, but we don't want to try to ram it down their throats because they're, they're much more likely. If we say, you know, I've got an idea about that. Can I run it by you? Or I wonder what would happen if you did it this way. Or, you know, for whatever it's worth, I was thinking, if you frame it like that, where they can take it or leave it, they're much more likely to take it. Hmm. I, I love that you yeah. talk to the kids as well as doing the research, right? You actually ask them, hey, <laughs> does this work? Does that work? How does this feel? And and also thinking that, you know, they, they, the parent might say, I told them five, ten times, it's not going to work the tenth time. And then the jump might be, well, what if I say it louder or I throw some threats in? Yeah, Well, it's interesting for me, you know, I mean, I, again, I, I at this point probably spent something like 50,000 hours, importantly, one-on-one with kids. So, it's, so I have a huge advantage over, you know, a classroom teacher where the attention by, by nature has to be divided. But also with me, I mean, I don't have, I don't have carrots or sticks, right? I'm not, there, there's no promise of a grade. I can't, you know, confiscate the cell phone. I got, I got nothing, right? So I got to figure out how do I, how do I support these folks? How do I engage? How do I listen to them? How do how, I get them to listen to me? How do we help them be motivated? And so much of the, so much of it is not, it's often not the what, but the how. Because, I mean, just routinely, parents will, you know, uh, par- parents will be trying to tell kids this, that, the other, and, and, I'll, and I'll deliver the same message. But I'll do, just do it in a way that's different. And obviously, it helps. We, you know, a prophet is always from a faraway land and never lives under the same roof. And so it may just be a fresh, be a fresh voice. But, you know, it may also for me be kind of arrested development that I in many ways I feel like I identify as much with, you know, with the teens as I do with their parents. And so it just it's this it's this relationship that that either by design or by default is kind of mutually respectful, you know, that I'm not working on kids. I'm working with them. And when you change that energy, it just has a really profound impact on the likelihood or the ability of, of, of kids to hear us. I think also your intention um, that's motivating the communication is likely to be uh, different um, and, and sort of the end mm. results you're seeking for. And that brings me to my next uh, question. And to be honest, I, I want to say I was a little suspicious of the, the second pillar when I read the title, and um, and that is the intent to build motivation. And my thought was, do you need to build motivation or just not tear it down? Um, because we're naturally an internally motivated beings, right? So is it a difference between nurturing um, or building? Or how do you both see that, the, the, your role in, um, in motivation and the parent's role in motivating? I, I think it's, it's a wonderful point, Ellie. And I, I think really in terms of motivation, it's probably nurturing is a better word. Um, and you know, one of the things that Ned and I realized uh, 10, or, 10 or some years ago when we first met was that so many of the kids that, that we see are, are have what we consider to be almost motivational disorders, where some of them, particularly the kids that Ned sees, are incredibly stressed, perfectionistic, driven, would do anything for an A, would sacrifice their health or their, their, their family for, for, to, do, to, do, to get into the most elite colleges. And a lot of the kids that I see who, who, who have depression, who, kids who have learning disabilities or ADHD, they don't do well in school. They figure, what's the point of trying? And what we wanted was we wanted these kids to develop that healthy, 
drive to develop them themselves. So, so they de- develop themselves. So they have something useful to offer in this world. And I think that we, we do see kids who are way under motivated, who don't seem to care about very much or can't motivate themselves for school, but are motivated for other things. And, and we, it's so interesting because every place that we looked to see how do you really help nurture, and I'll use that word, nurture that intrinsic internal motivation, all the arrows pointed in the direction of autonomy which is one of the reasons why we organized our first book, The Self-Driven Child, around this idea of sense of control, because it's huge for mental health, but it's also, this sense of control or autonomy is also the basis for that internal motivation. And, and along with that, you know, the model of what's called self-determination theory holds that to be intrinsically motivated, we need three things, and, and really in kind of equal measure, of autonomy, relatedness, and competency. And the challenge that I think parents, the trap that they often fall into is to emphasize the competency to the competency to competency. And we, we just kind of ram support down kids' throats in ways that undermine their autonomy and the, and the relatedness. And so, so sometimes we're, you know, Bill made the point that sometimes kids are motivated for things outside of school. And in the, certainly in the work that I do, I am always trying to find out as early as possible what are the things outside of school the kids are interested in, that are like authentically interested in one. So I have kind of vernacular to, to make metaphors when we talk about test performance, but also to every week ask about, you know, so how is Phil hockey? You know, to tell me about the, the new dress you're designing for the, for the runway show. You know, it, you know, tell me about the musical because a lot of the things that kids do, you know, that really are fun for them and, and, and they, they just intrinsically enjoy Oftentimes, unless they're going to get them into college, they're getting the message that it's kind of a waste of time. I mean, I had a student whose parents sat me down and, and told me about the seven-figure donation that they'd made to a, a, an elite college, and you know they were, you know, and how and <laughs> and this was the plan. This is the one where the kid was going to go, and then went on to talk about how all she wants to do is play soccer and spend time with her friends. Like, what what's the point of that? It won't get into college. And I thought, well, these are the very things. That, that matter to her, and if she can if she can enjoy the things that matter to her, there can be a spillover effect, and, and to create enough energy for I don't know dreary you know you know history class or some such thing. There's so much there, mm-hmm. and I, I think we'll unpack it as we go through the conversation. Um, we could just use that family as an example, but we'll let that we'll let that happen naturally. I, I, and I think mm-hmm. we're also going to save the third prong, um, which is stress tolerance. Um, because I think the, the my question there is, if you think that uh, tolerance is the best we can do in the current system. And so maybe let's hold off on that a little bit. And we'll talk about the current mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. of both the families and the educational system, um, and the, the pressures that those put in those expectations. But um, something you mentioned, Ed, was the this building connection that how you focus on and are aware of and concerned with your ability to build connection so then you can have a greater impact and you to talk about that in the book um, that the manner in which you communicate is um, inextricably intertwined with uh, building connection and one thing that's so fantastic about the book is you give very specific um, suggestions on what to do. For instance, making eye contact, sitting next to them. Um, this idea about shared interests and rituals, and that if you don't actually share any interests, being interested in their interests, and maybe um, bringing <laughs> okay. them into your own lives in a, a one way or another. Um, and then the one-on-one time. So why is why are these so important? And and what what difference does it make when you're communicating from and with these um, actions and intentions? I'll make two quick points. I mean, one, I just don't think you can say to people, you can make someone feel that they're important to you at, while at the same time seeing that the things that are important to them are, are, are a waste of time, right? You know, you matter to me, but everything you want to do with your time is, 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 is foolish and a waste of time. It's just not, it's just not respectful, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, everyone has, everyone has their, their own interests and, and rather than trying to run them down or, or to try to talk kids into other things, you know, I'm trying to recognize that those things have value, even if they're video games, which everyone tends to rail about. They're, and so it's really a matter of trying to figure out this thing that matters to you, 
why does that matter to you? Not why does it matter to you, which is more of a, you know, an accusation with a question mark at the end. You idiot. Really to, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, you know, and it's just, it's respectful. And I'm, and I'm trying to understand how other people experience the world, what matters to them. I mean, I remember years ago, I had this student um, and she, she went to a school that was many of the independent schools here in D.C. are relatively liberal. And this one was as well. And her family was very politically conservative. And she had, and I was asked, what are you doing this summer? She's like, oh, I have an internship. And sort of shuts it down. And I was like, interesting. So I circle back a little later. I said, what's, what's the internship? She's well, um, it's some political stuff. And her dad was a big, big in, the, in this world. And it was the third time, and, she, and I finally got her out. She said, you know, um, well, I'm, 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 I'm internship. I have an internship with Vice President Cheney. Now, my politics are very left of center. I'm sure that I didn't agree with her or her family on, on the issues. And I just said, wow, that sounds really cool. Because it is really cool. I mean, it's the it's vice president of the United States. I don't have to agree with it to validate and say, wow, that's a really cool thing. And you could feel that, that you know, her shoulders dropped, right? And the temperature dropped about 10 degrees because it's like, you know, I see you. I see what matters to you. I respect that and value it, even though, you know, I would spend my time in different ways. Um, and so I just think it's I think parents, even at the youngest kids are at the youngest age, are constantly trying to shape them and grow them in certain ways. You know, like Edward Scissorhand trying to, you know, shape the topiary. <laughs> but we don't friggin know what kind of tree we have yet. Like, so just give it sunshine and water right, and let it do its thing. And see what kind of tree you got. And maybe we don't need to be responsible for pruning. Well, <laughs> that, that's what's, you know, what happened with, with us, Ellie, is that we, we focused on the sense of control in the first book because it's just, it really, besides letting kids know that I love you more than anything on this planet, that I, expressing confidence that they can figure out their own life is probably the most important thing we can do. And what, when we were writing our second book, when we were, when we were writing What Do You Say, you know, we, we wanted to kind of pick up on some of the same things, but also we, we, in terms of communication, the, what we were struck by was just how these incredible levels of stress and anxiety, and we know that the closest thing to a silver bullet in terms of protecting kids from mental health problems is having a close relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And so we, we figured, how, how do you create a close relationship? And, and so we, we knew that expressing empathy for kids as opposed to judgment is, is probably the most powerful way that we really start to feel connected in part because it's sharing emotional experiences with people that makes us feel close to them. And if, if kids bring us their emotions and they're upset, they're angry, they can, even if they're angry at us, and, and, and we don't scold them. We, we listen respectfully. We, we try to feed back and let them know we're understanding what they're feeling. Let it calm down because that, that's what really heals emotions. Then we can talk and we, then, then like that and, and we can work, solve problems together. But it's that, it's that listening closely. It, it's that expression of empathy and validating kids' feelings as opposed to talking them out of them. Say, oh, you shouldn't be feeling that or that's, I don't know why you're acting like that. Uh, that that's really the key, the, the, the closeness. And then the other things that you mentioned, the, the, the spending one-on-one time, that there's nothing that's more, you got to discourage kid. There's nothing that's more healing than spending time alone with parents. Uh, just, and and the, the message to your kid, there's 168 hours in, in a week, and I want to make sure I have at least one with you during the week, just one-on-one, because that's how you get to know somebody. That's how you stay connected. And so we, we just thought we wanted to start this new book with, uh, if we're going to talk about communication, this is really, this, this may be the most important part. Is the communicating in a way that, that cultures, that closeness and connection, and as Ned said, that, that mutual respect. Because, you know, if you want kids to be respectful, you treat them respectfully. Then there's that kind of idea. I think there's a lot of confusion um, with the word empathy and with its relationship to compassion or sympathy or pity. Um, and, and, and the relationship to then validating feelings. And I'm just thinking about why it's so hard for so many people and that, and it's because it's often very uncomfortable. And especially if we are, um, emotionally tied to another, or we're sensitive people that their discomfort becomes our discomfort and we can Mm -hmm. feel it in our bodies and we aren't, we, we want it to go away. And so we develop, um, fallback 
inclinations, right? Which you talk about dismissive positivity, um, sharing too soon, solving, and you talk about a, a four-step process that can you that can help. And, and two of the things happen even before you start engaging. Um, does one of you want to maybe talk a little bit about that four-step process? Um, yes. <laughs> well, let, let's pause. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Chapter. There's two. There's two. Four. Um, are you talking about? Are you talking about wave? Oh, let's just skip it. We'll go back. <laughs> we'll change the question. <laughs> they can look at the book if they want the four step process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's talk about why it's why it's so hard. And then I'm guessing that that was um, part of your awareness as you were writing the book because you've been dealing with these parents. You're realizing that when you're putting this information out, I'm guessing it was an impetus for writing this book is, you know, you've got these parents when you're telling them to be present, um, build emotional closeness, I'm guessing they're like deers in the headlights. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think that your, your, the question asked before, before is, is a really good one that, that, you know, when, because we're mammals, because we love our kids, we're wired when, when we're wired to be upset when, when people we care about are upset. And we have this natural inclination this, to, to make things right, a writing reflex. And so we tend to want to jump in and solve it. Or, you know, sometimes talk kids out of their feelings. Well, it's not such a big deal. And, and years from now, no one, will, no one will really care because in some ways we want to get rid of, we want to get rid of those hard feelings, either by pushing the feelings away or, or by solving them. And, and one of the concerns that we have, two concerns, one is that from a, from a stress tolerance perspective, what we want to do is we want kids to have, to be able to tolerate dealing with those feelings and to perfectly learn how to solve that situation for themselves or, or to calm themselves down with our help, but not have, you know, not lack the ability to, to either fix things for themselves or to soothe themselves without, without someone else doing that. That's kind of a, that's kind of a problem. You can only handle hard things when mom and dad are, are nearby. But it's this process of going from, you know, there, there, there to an infant to, to kind of walking with kids and then teenagers as they get older. When we have this, the, the tendency, though, when, when we either want to jump in and solve it or, or sue them too much, we deprive them of the opportunity. But we also can convey to kids and unintentionally, I suppose, that we can't handle those hard feelings. Right? It's really a challenging thing if someone's deeply, deeply upset to just sit with them and be with them when they're deeply upset. It, it, as you mentioned before, it's, it's, it's excruciating, and it takes a great deal of self-control. But when we can recognize the, the value of that, we're, we're, that we're giving kids opportunities to, to, to put things in perspective themselves, and as Bill mentioned before, that we develop emotional closeness. When if you tell me something terrible is going on, if, you, if I just say, God, boy, that sounds really hard, I'm so sorry. Is it is there a way that I can help? Is a very different thing from just jumping into it. I mean, I'll tell you the story right now. I, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, my 19-year-old son was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Well, this is going to be a really interesting path that we as a family get to walk. And there's some people who immediately start saying, we got to talk to this person, got to talk to this, have you done this, have done this? And they're giving like 14,000 instructions as though we haven't already had some instructions on this. And it was just, it was just maddening, right? Where the people who first said, wow, I'm so sorry. And then went in the conversation, right? And so, so just, just this foundational rule, that, I mean, the, the rule that when, when, if we can empathize and simply recognize the reasons why you're really upset, Rather than jumping into problems, problems, we're in a much better position. So I, I want to say I'm so sorry. And this, the way you framed it, I mean, how incredibly powerful and, and optimistic and how lucky your son is to have you as, as a father. Um, and I also want to talk about just this idea because we, we mention it, but I, I think I just want to shine the light on it. This because it's also a skill is holding space and that when we are holding space mm -hmm. for another for our kids not only is that the biggest gift we can give them and the most powerful thing we can do but we're teaching them a skill that they can do for themselves because if we can hold space 
within our discomfort and in an uncomfortable situation and in a moment of stress or anxiety or worry, rather than resisting or avoiding or pushing away from or even fixing um, and controlling, right? That fixing, controlling, protecting. It's like the, mm-hmm. the sweet spot, right? It's the magic place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason why when I got this diagnosis, like the, the first person I called was Bill Stixer. <laughs> you know, yeah. because, well, you know, because it's basically the same. Okay. Okay. Well, let, let's, you know, how can I help? How can I help? And, you know, the, and, and I, and I just, I think it's so foundational for, particularly if you have little kids from, for, for kids to know, I can take this, whatever's hard to mom and dad, and they're not going to lose their minds. They're not going to go to peace. They're not going to start jumping up and down. They're not going to have to call the teacher. The first thing you're going to focus on is just is, is to use your words, holding space and being with a kid when, you know, when, when things, when they have hard feelings, because that, that message that, you know, implicit or explicit that I can handle hard, your hard feelings, and that I can handle the hard stuff that you're handling. Pretty, yeah. pr- pretty powerful experience. And that it's safe, it, 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 right? It's safe. Yeah. And I think that we, we, we get that message that I can handle your feelings, and I'm confident that you can too. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, Ellie, you made the, the point about the confusion in some ways between empathy and sympathy or pity. And, you know, we want to be clear that, that empathy simply means it's, it's, it's like compassion. It's like under, I understand. And the validation piece means that you know, I, I might feel like that too, or a lot of people feel like that. It's normal to feel like that. Um, and it's, it's very different than pity. And we talk in the book about, about not feeling sorry for kids because what we want is we want kids to have a courageous attitude, not, not a fearful one. And I think that, that it's so that, that as we listen, and we, we try help kids know we're trying to understand what you feel. I'm not judging. I'm trying to understand. And then is there a way that, is there a way that I can help? Um, and and I, I, I don't want Ned's son, who's a beautiful, like, like his father and mother, he's a beautiful human being. Oh, my God, he's a beautiful man. And, and I don't want him to feel sorry for himself. So I, I practice not feeling sorry for him. Yeah. And the same way as Ned. Same way as Ned. I mean, I, I, this, if I could choose for them not to go through this, that would be my first choice. But this is what is, and and I know that Ned can handle it, and I, I don't know Matthew that well, but I I I'm, I don't feel sorry for him because this is his path, and I respect it, and I, I have the I have the faith that he can handle it. You talk well, throughout that. the, yeah, you talk throughout the book um, a lot of parents balking at different um, suggestions. And one of the ones that comes up frequently is their concern about, oh, if I'm empathetic, if I validate their feelings, um, you know, am I condoning the actions or am I being permissive? Um, and, and you frame it in the separation of the distinction between a feeling um, and an emotional response, even if it's a bad mood, and bad behavior. So why is that so valuable for parents to be able to distinguish the two? Well, oh, you know, even bad behavior, I mean, it, our, what, we, what we suggest in, in both our books, really, is, is seek first to understand. To try to understand where kids are, what, what bad behavior is about. But there, there's a story in the book, it's actually, it's in a different chapter, uh, it's a, a, a school counselor who's working with a high school kid who's smoking a lot of pot. <laughs> I, I told my daughter that story last night. Okay, okay. So it, yeah, and, and this kind of thing happens so much when, when, you, when you change the energy. And so she sat down and she said, I'm not going to try to talk you out of smoking pot, but I'd love to understand what it does for you. And this, this counselor is trained in something called motivational interviewing, which you talk about in the book, which is a style of communicating that can help people find their own reasons for change. And so this, the, the counselor is, is, is listening to the girl say, you know, I, I feel so much more, I'm much less anxious when I'm with my friends, I'm more fun to be around, so kind of you know, waxing rhapsodic about the benefits of pot. And the counselor is listening for what they call change talk, because, because most people are ambivalent about, about most things. And, and she's waiting to hear this girl say, yeah, but, but there's a problem. And eventually this girl said, yeah, but it's very expensive. And the counselor said, so if you had more money, if you didn't buy, spend as much money on pot, what, what would you do? 
so I could get my hair done or buy new shoes. Next time, this next session, the girl comes in with a new haircut um, or a new pair of shoes. I, I think remember. nails. I think she got her nails done. <laughs> <laughs> it's the nails. Thank you, Ellie. So the nails, and they, they talk a little bit more. And, and as they talk, and again, this is not this is with no judgment, no preaching, just trying to understand, and eventually trying to help the kid understand herself. The kids, the kid wants to do better in school than she is. And he starts to realize, with, without any coercion, that smoking pot isn't helping her academically. In fact, it's it's, it's really it's really hurting her grades. And she, but at the end of the school year, after a few months, she's smoking much less, relying, understands much better, doing better in school. And with without, and it really was based on this respectful relationship, this non-judgment, this empathy. And, and, and values-based, right? And, and I just want to clarify, I said, told my daughter yeah. this story not because she smokes pot, which she does not, but because it was yeah, so masterful. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. you need to hear this because it was just masterful. And and the fact that she utilized that technique and focused on dis- discovering what were the whys. Why is she smoking pot? What would be something that may outweigh the value of it? Yeah, it's hard to imagine any of us as parents. If we find out there, you know, we find a big stash of pot in our kid's bedroom. It's 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 hard to to think. Okay, let's just be calm and let's let's start with this kind of conversation with her, as opposed to you know, you're in trouble, girl. You're you're grounded for three weeks. And but what we're suggesting, if we want to be connected with our kids, and we really want to influence them in, in in the best possible way, we want to shape their development so that they in a respectful way, that as much as we can. We seek first to understand their experience before we judge it. You say tired, stressed, discouraged, angry kids misbehave. So what's making them tired, stressed, discouraged, or angry? Start mm-hmm. there, and the rest is much easier than you might think. So, you know, we could be done right there with the interview, but, the, but we won't. We're going to keep going. Um, and let's just jump into another story, because I thought this one um, was also so impactful. And just the the, the witnessing of the shift was... Um, heartening, which was Cammie, who um, threw a party and then just blatantly lied about it. And the father uses amnesty to break the cycle. So what what happened there? So I just, we we were working on this book, we're just finishing, what do you say? And I I was talking with a friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, um, who I've known him for a long time, I've known his kids, I don't know him well. But I, I remember him telling me about his youngest daughter, who was just a pain in the ass in, in, in high school. It was constantly breaking rules and, and challenging limits and lying. And the, the, the point where they just had kind of a toxic relationship with their parents. And um, the way the story goes is that the mother was out of town and the father, my, my friend, was, was at a meeting on a Friday night. And he gets a call from the neighbor who says, you know, your daughter has 20 kids over the house and they're all drinking. And so he finishes the meeting, comes home, and, and the girl must have got winded. So she, the kids are all cleared out and she cleaned up the house. And, and he says, well, you know, I got a call from a neighbor who said, and she says, no, he, I, I didn't have a party. There's no kids here. Are you saying that John's lying? Yeah, he's lying. <laughs> it's so, pretty so bold. He, call, he, call, he calls back to John. And, and John puts his wife on the phone who's a therapist. And, and, and the, the wife knew that they've had this really pretty toxic, argumentative, conflictual relationship with, with, the, with the daughter and it, for, for a couple of years. And he said, he said Rob, give her amnesty. To tell her what, whatever happened didn't happen. And so what, what happened is he, he goes home and, and, and goes into her room and he says, you know, I, I think if I were talking to my parents and I was bold face, telling them bold-faced lies, I probably at some level feel kind of guilty about it. So I'm assuming that you aren't feeling great about this. I just want you to know that I'm giving you amnesty. Whatever happened in my mind didn't happen. I love you I did, no matter what you do. And, and he went to bed. And she came in later that night and said, Dad, I, I did have a party. And I'm really sorry for the lying. He said the temperature in our house went up by 30 degrees. He said it was just so cold and uncomfortable before then. And the warmth and the closeness, he said, it was just dramatic. And a couple of years later, and this, and this started to, 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 heal, to heal this very fractious relationship. And a couple of years later, this girl said, I was doing a lot of crazy shit. And I, and I really, I'm sorry for all I put you through. And they're very close to, to this day. But it was, I mean, who would think that, 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 that the right response to your kid having a big party like this is amnesty? 
But, but his point was that I, it wasn't the, I, mean, I don't want kids drinking, but I went to drinking parties when I was in high school. It, it wasn't that I was so upset about. It. it was the lying and the lack of trust and the lack of closeness. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to be present and build emotional closeness. Uh, you mentioned in the book, and this might be surprising for some, that affluent families are at a higher risk for anxiety, the kids for anxiety, and maybe the parents too, <laughs> for um, yeah. anxiety and mood disorders, chemical use and abuse, self-injury, and, and um, certain kinds of delinquent behaviors. And um, why is that when someone externally and even the, maybe the parents themselves might think, oh, I've given them everything, you know, that they need? Right, right. There, there's a woman uh, who studies affluent kids. And initially, 20 years ago, she, she, had, she had, uh, had these affluent kids as a control group in a study of, of kids with poverty. And she was shocked. Uh, this is Sonia Luther, who was shocked to find out that these affluent kids actually have more of these mental health problems than the kids in poverty did. And over 20 years of study, the, the, the two hypotheses are excessive pressure to excel and lack of closeness to parents. And the idea is that even the parents may know kids every grade and maybe thinking constantly about how to get them into college, maybe come to their games, but, but they tend to be busy, preoccupied with their own achievement, and, and the kids don't feel as emotionally close. A lot of times they feel more, uncondi- more conditional kind of acceptance based on their performance. Um, and so there's a story in the book of a, a student who's very much that profile where, you know, on the surface of it, you know, they have every resource, every advantage, everyone's perfectly put together, hair is always done, nails always done, everything looks beautiful. And I, and this girl was just, just impossibly perfectionistic and had aspirations that were going to be really hard to to pull off. And then, and and just, just a kind of really a basket case and sort of emotionally. And I, at some point I asked her, I said, who are you closest to in the world? And she said, my nanny. And then I said, well, after your nanny, who are you closest to? And she said, my driver. And I really didn't have the heart or the stomach to keep asking to find when or whether mom or dad would show up on that list. And it's hard because, you know, when you, when you have every opportunity, you know, people who have wealth and connections, and you, you naturally want to use that to help your kids, to help them get go forward and be as educated as they can be and, and you know, be on paths to lives that are successful. But it's really easy, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional with what we communicate to our kids, that a lot of kids feel that their parents care more about their success than they do about them. And that's just a terrible, terrible thing to feel. And it may not be that parents actually believe that, but there may be, it may be a sort of a breakdown in communication that, that, what that the kids just aren't feeling that they're, they're loved for who they are, you know, success, success be darned. Um, and, and, and so growing up in that, I mean, growing up in that environment, particularly with so often these kids are at super highly, you know, super academic schools, and then they're also comparing themselves to other academic kids, it's really hard not to feel kind of stressed from every, every corner. I had a family whose who's, um, kids were at one of the elite independent schools here in D.C., and they said, and this dad was really interesting, he said, you know, these kids all kind of know or feel that that they that they're they're born you know at the at the apex right and so long as they don't screw it up they can stay there but there's really they can't kind of go harder than they are all they can do is lose this natural advantage that they have kind of stressful well and it gets tricky right because the parents might not think that they believe that um, and if you ask them, they'll say, oh, no, of course, the most important thing is my child happiness. But the problem is that they equate um, mistakenly mm-hmm. a happy life and happiness and a successful life with these parameters that aren't actually what tends to make one happy, but they're the ones that they're using as well. And so it, it gets it gets kind of muddled. You guys say twice in the book um, at different points and that the truth is there are many ways to be happy and successful in this world. Um and I'm guessing probably for both of you, but especially Ned, that that may not be what you actually hear being communicated from these parents to these kids with their expectations. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, gosh, I mean, 
if you could be, you know, go, go to the most successful colleges and do brilliantly there and have highly remunerative jobs, right, and do work that's right, you know, that, on the surface of that sounds great, right? And, 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 and we talk in the chapter seven about the, talking with kids about the pursuit of happiness and the work of Martin Seligman, the, you know, kind of the father of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he has this beautiful acronym of PERMA. And it's what contributes to happiness. And so it's positive emotions. And some of that's, you know, you know how your default setting is and what you can do to, to change that. But then it's engagement or flow experience. It's relationships. It's meaning. And then the last one is achievement. And it's not that, you know, going to Harvard and, and, and getting accolades and, and making lots of money. It's not that those things don't contribute to happiness. The problem is it's one-fifth of the equation. And if people are effectively sacrificing the other four-fifths of it in order for that achievement. So back to my kid, who, you know, parents like, why is she wasting time with her friends and playing soccer? <laughs> it just because, kills because me every time. It right? just, every because, time I read it, I, right? it was like a knife right. in the heart. You know, and if she gave up friends and soccer and spent more time on test prep and grades, she I'm sure would likely maybe have higher grades and test scores. But if you're wiping away, you know, these two things, well, things that are really found important for her mental health so that she can actually continue to be successful in school. And if we're if we're giving her a message that these things don't matter for you going forward in life, then I mean, Bill and I have a couple of mutual clients and I won't give any identified details, but they're billionaires. They're billionaires, and they have. And there's one family in particular, Bill and I think about all the time. They have. I love that. That's everything. not an identifying detail any longer. <laughs> right, right, no, right, right, right. That's right. This family has everything. I mean, it's multiple billions of dollars, and they. And from my perspective, what I could glean from talking with a, this child with him at work, they have everything in the world except for peace and happiness. And you think. You've won everything. You've earned everything. You have, you know, and you're thinking, I'm still not happy. How could this possibly be? And so our feeling on this is let's just talk early on with this. Say, of course, it's lovely to go to Harvard or whatever. I hope you were good in Crimson, right? It's, it's wonderful. That's, and it's a great achievement for you. But just don't sacrifice relationships, you know, and meaning and engagement, things that, that because, <laughs> because you'll end up successful as all get out and you won't be happy. So I want to separate two points there because I think they're both super important. And one is um, the why, right? Is it an extrinsic um, mm -hmm. value or motivator or is it intrinsic? And and that, you know, when you say it's great to go to Harvard, well, maybe, right? Maybe it is, right. depending on who you are, why you wanted to go there, um, what you think it's going to provide with, you know, for you. Um, or if it's just getting there is what you intrinsically wanted, then absolutely. Uh, and then connected with that, this aspect of suffer now, and, and this comes up a lot in the book, suffer now for the payoff later. And you say no amount of achievement, money or prestige is worth the price of lifelong vulnerability to anxiety and depression. Um, that's science. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think people will also be surprised to know that, you know, this idea of, well, just suffer now and, and push through, and you'll be glad later, um, physiologically is not really an accurate uh, approach. Years, years ago, when people were really kind of fairly early stages of studying uh, the brain and mental health, the, the scientists were saying that depression scars the brain. And D D Danny Pine, who is, is, is the, guy, the guy who's the head of all the, the childhood and adolescent depression and anxiety research at the National Institutes of Mental Health, who, who, who was saying that the best thing we can do to, to address the mental health problems in, in the United States, and this is before they are where they are now, is to prevent problems in childhood. Because if, if it, 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 getting really highly anxious or getting depressed changes the brain, changes the developing brain in a way that makes it more likely that they're going to be recurrently, uh, be persistently anxious or have these recurrent bouts of depression. And when I first learned this, you know, 20 years ago or so, it just it just struck me that why do if we took this seriously. Well, I think we do things quite a bit differently. So Ned and I say, from our point of view, so many of the kids that we see and some of the families we work with, they act as if. The assumption is that the most important outcome of adolescence is where you go to college. 
And our opinion, the most important outcome of child and adolescence is, is sculpting a healthy brain. Because we want, we want kids to be as successful as they can possibly be, but we want them to be able to enjoy their success. And we just see so many people who have really high achieving people who are miserable. And many of those people, you know, we're getting five or six hours a night of sleep as, as teenagers working extremely hard to get into elite college, extremely stressed in college, and then just persistently have, a, have, have really sculpted brains that just make them more vulnerable to being anxious and depressed and, and to using chemicals. And so that's why so much of our focus in both of our books is really helping kids keep perspective and keep a balanced development and really focus on that intrinsic drive to develop themselves and the, the, the importance of, of getting enough rest um, uh, and the, the healthy balance between rest and activity uh, because we want kids to be sculpting, sculpting healthy brains. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, something you just said, which is if we took this seriously, because um, as you said it, I was thinking, well, and also if we took seriously the science that play when kids are little is the most important in, in creating synapses to fire and in all sorts of other setting the stage for all sorts of other later life successes and sleep. We still are not taking seriously. And it's been how long? Mm. 40 years um, mm. where science has shown that teenagers especially, but all kids need more sleep. We don't seem to have taken that seriously yet. Um, wow. So you, you say on page 90, before going any further, no, and I, we should start the book with this, but they wouldn't listen. So it was good placement. Before going any further, because you've, you've got them by then, um, know that your job isn't to motivate your kids at all. Rather, you want to help them foster their own sense of internal motivation. The end goal is not to get them to do well. It's for them to want to do well. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about even the definition of doing well. Um, but in conjunction with that, you say the most important work to the parents, the most important work is on yourself. So how has this been going over? And um, what what shifts do you feel are, are the most important to focus on? Well, one thing about that, you know, if, if we if we're really honest with the idea that we can't fundamentally make our kids do anything. We can make it so darn unpleasant that they're willing to sacrifice their own autonomy because, you know, because they can't, they can't, they can't they're too worried about losing their relationship with their parents. So they'll, they'll, they'll go along or they'll, they'll find like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do that. But, but apart from that, if we recognize that if a kid fundamentally didn't want to do something, we couldn't make him, it really does change the energy, right, in ways that, 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 that kind of lets us off the hook. Because I think a lot of the a lot of the, the stress that parents feel is that they're somehow it's their job to make their kids be a certain way, to make their kids turn out a certain way. And that's of course crazy making because if you feel it's my job to do something that's effectively impossible, it, you oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, talk about a low sense of control for parents. And so a lot of this is try, is you know, the is the, the science and the sense of that are trying to help folks understand and be at peace with this. Because we, we talk about in the, in the self-driven child about not moving from being a manager to being a consultant. And so if you, if you, if you take that obligation off yourself, it's enormously useful. My daughter, <laughs> at the start of her freshman year, declared that she had zero, exactly zero interest in going to the college that my wife and I had attended. And I'm like, great, right? <laughs> then, there was, then I couldn't have any concern, you know, but, but you, you didn't get enough high enough grade on, on such and such, right? And it was very much about, well, where do you think you would want to go? What, what, what you know, helping her, what, what do you like to do? And developing her, her talents that way. And, and it is kind of a mind shift because I think so many parents feel the pressure themselves from their own families or their own friends or the schools that they attend that there's somehow their job to make their kids, you know, turn out a certain way. And it's just, it, it makes the energy all wrong because then we're, again, then we're not working with our kids, we're working on them. And, that, and in many communities that they'll be judged, right? It's, it's this idea oh, yeah. that, yeah, that, that, you know, that's, that's my, my meter I'm going to be, be judged by. So within this context with anxious parents and we've got a school system, um, we'll loop back, loop back to the system within which these kids are operating, you know, anxious parents, the school's system uh, that's based on scarcity and, and rating models. Yeah. Um, 
What are the primary factors, do you think, for shifting from this constant, and it, it is constant, um, even if we kind of get away from it a little for a little while here and there, stress, and um, reframing to be able to shift into a state of, of agency, creating agency. So we, we can be with the fear and be with the stress and be with all that. And, and you know, definitely in the next move, maybe. Um, and that'll be the last question about how we can be education disruptors. But in the meantime, because it seems like the book's kind of an in the meantime um, solutions, which we need so we can then make that shift, is what are the, the sort of um, ways we can start to manage um, so that we can come out of it? Well, it, it seems to me that one, one of the, part of the reason that, that Ned and I wrote both of these books is we wanted to, 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 to share the science in our clinical experience with parents so they could feel that it's safe to relax a little bit about their kids, that they didn't have to worry so much, they didn't have to drive their kids, they don't have to worry that somehow if their kids weren't being pushed constantly, they, they weren't going to reach their full potential. And, I, and, and many, many parents, Ellie, who've, who've read our book and, 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 and or read similar kind of uh, uh, pieces that suggest that we shift, we shift the focus on our, of our values. And as in our book, we talk about, um, we talk about an approach to helping kids that, that just simply ask them to reflect in their highest values. And, and you know, kids who are extremely anxious about taking tests feel all this academic pressure is they simply take five minutes and write a little about what, what's really important to them. It's, not, it's often not doing the best on this test. You know, it's kindness and friendship and that kind of stuff. And, and I think that if, if we really get straight about what, 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 what do we want our kids to be happy? Okay, what does it take to be happy? And achievement is only part of that. And, and being rested is a huge part of that. It just seems to me that, that eventually we're going, to read a, that we're going to reach a critical mass of, of parents and grandparents like myself and, and other people who think that what's happening is completely insane, that we have this delusion about what's important for kids and we have this delusion of scarcity, this delusion that, that, that if, they're, if they're tired and pressured all the time, that's how they, that's how they turn out best. It's crazy. And I just think we're going to, re, we're going to reach a critical mass if enough of us get really clear about the science and we prioritize and we say, I'm not going to push my kid that way. And it just works. One woman who wrote our book, wrote our book, never asked her kids about her home, this high school kid about his homework, never asked him about college applications. He's at Harvard. He applied to Harvard and got in without a mother even knowing where he's going to college. I mean, it, it really, it, the kids and my own kids, both of whom have PhDs, um, and one of them had learning disabilities and ADHD, they had actually absolutely no academic pressure. Uh, there's a lot of meditation in, in our family and a lot of, of focus on, on, on inner peace and service um, and as well as self-development. And the, the, the idea that kids have to have this intense and highly pressured success, uh, uh, childhood to be successful is absolutely insane. And I think we're going to reach a critical mass as more of us got to get our head around this and have to basically support each other, support each other and making choices that are more, that are healthier for our kids. If I, if I could add to that, I mean, a point that Bill often makes is that almost all mental health is changing thinking from I have to, to I want to. And you, you, I hear this in kids all the time, but I have to do this. I have to do that. If you, you know, if you're the, you know, the regs of Byron Cain, it's like, well, where's the evidence that you have to? And, and it's all, it's just all this fear-based thinking where, as Bill points out, if you reflect on what matters to you, what really provides meaning to you, then you're, then you're orienting your energy and your life around what you, around what you want to. And, and in addition to that, you know, we want, we want kids to be as successful as they want to be. We want them to be as successful as they can because it's good for them. It's good for their families, their schools. It's good for the whole bloody country to develop talent as much as we can. But the point that you made a while back, Ellie, about, you know, people who, you know, push, 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 and they just kind of fry themselves so early on. We just want kids to have a model that's sustainable so that you can work hard 
but for me, that is really kind of this balance of if you're going to take on more, if there's going to be more pressure, you need to balance the inflows of stress with the outflows of stress. And, and you know, the, the whole culture of, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of thing. It's just, I mean, it, it was it was great for a while, but but you, you you in that movie you never see the guy, you know, ten years later after being a master of the universe, where he's an alcoholic and on his on his third wife, you know, and and dies fifteen years earlier than he should have been. With it's like, well, wait a second, right? And in some ways, it's kind of where do we tell that story? And we always want to finish with the person who's grabbed the brass ring. Where I just love this idea of of being sustainable. I mean, I'll pick on Bill. I mean, Bill's seventy one years old and still works as hard as anybody that I know because one, he likes what he does and two, I'll, I'll, I'll share a little bit. <laughs> People tell me a few months ago that I think I'm going to keep doing this for a while because I think that I think I still have things to contribute. I think I still help people. And it's like, you think? I mean, <laughs> so great. I mean it's, it's just, and, and gosh, and, 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 and what's a successful life? It is, is a successful life is a life that you want to have. And the kids can't, it's impossible to have that if they've never been given the space um, to know what they like and what they enjoy, mm-hmm. or if that gets so repressed that later on they're just like, ah, I have no idea what I like. I have no idea what I'm interested in. So how can you have a job or a career or a life that is filled with um, meaningful work that's interesting and, and enjoyable to you? So I want to end just with highlighting the distinction between um, some of the healthy expectations that we can set for kids, which are smart goals, positive self-talk. I love the idea of a past successes list. Um, But one of the things was parents saying, you'll be safe and I believe in you versus the DC mom who said, we just want her to do her best. And, And why on the surface that could sound like something that might be great to want for your kids, but in reality, it can be a nightmare. And, and in conjunction with that, I think is the difference between bribing a child to meet your goals versus supporting them with incentives to meet their own goals. Yeah. So it turns out that parental expectations are very highly related to kids' academic performance, but it's not, it's not, I, 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 I expect that you're going to go to Harvard. It's not that I basically have a demand or I, that I'll be disappointed if you don't. It's that I have confidence that you can achieve what you can. It's that, it's that quiet, calm expression of confidence. That's what really helps kids do well. And I think that uh, so often when we think about, uh, about expectations, it, it, it's that I, I expect meaning I, I, I'll, I demand or if you don't, I'm going to be angry or disappointed. And I think that we, 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 what we want is we want, we want kids to have lives that they, as Ned said, we, in this book, we talk about, from our point of view, what, what happiness, what doing well means, are, are creating a life that you're happy with, a life that you want, as Ned said. And, and kids need practice doing this. And they, they, we, they, we can start when they're little. And we want them to be able to run their own life but before we send them off to college. That, that should be our goal, that kids know how to run their own life. We, we were lecturing in Houston a couple of years ago, and a woman, uh, we mentioned an independent school in D.C. that's very elite, in high school. And, and this, this woman came up to, afterwards and said, um, that I'm at the manager clinic here in, in, in Houston. It's very prestigious mental health clinic. Said, and we know this independent school in DC very well because so many of the graduates get into the most elite colleges, but they can't handle them emotionally. So they come here, they, they, they take medical leave and they come here for treatment. Ugh. Yeah, it's just, to, to the one, they just don't have enough experience dealing with the real world, dealing, dealing with disappointment, kind of managing their own feelings, managing their own life. And our whole approach is based on let's set the goal. We want kids to have a life that they want. Let, let's support them in developing a life that they want. And there, there are other parts of your question I didn't address. Ned, you want to? Um, you're going to have to remind me of this part of your question. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all that's all we need to know. Right? That's that's the yeah. jumping off point and I think that's probably enough. You know, that's what everything else will come from and you guys said it earlier and I think you said it at the end of the, some place in the book that the parents job is to be the son. Um Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great story. 
Yeah, the Aesop's Fable. There's, I, I love this where um, it's a, there's a there's a, a sort of a, a, a battle between the the North Wind and the Sun, you know, about who's more powerful, and they each is protesting that that it's the stronger one, and, uh, and so they design a contest where there's a there's a, a, um, a traveler coming through, and he's got a, a robe or jacket around him, and and, uh, and whoever whoever can you know get this off of him is the strongest one. And so the the north wind starts blowing and blowing and blowing as fiercely as it can. It's cold and hot, stronger and stronger wind. And and what and the traveler just then wraps the the, the the garment more more and more tightly around him, you know, and, and until the wind exhausts himself. And then the sun, it's the sun's turn, and the sun sits there and thinks, and then so he just he sort of warms things up a little bit, and the guy kind of lets go of his shawl a bit, and then a little bit warmer, a little bit warmer, and a little bit warmer, and then he just and then he take and then he just takes it off, and so you know you use warmth, not force, and you're much more likely to achieve the the, the end that you want. Yeah, and then and avoid the getting stuck in the power struggle. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Just and just. This story, I think we end, it comes at the end of a chapter on what we call the language of a parent consultant. And our main, our main focus on developing that sense of autonomy in kids is parents thinking about themselves more as consultants to their kids, whose job is to help their kids figure out their life than it is to, and who they want to be, than it is to, to be the manager or the boss or the homework police or, or whatever. And we, we talk about how powerful it is once we recognize that we can't force kids and stop trying to force and we, we, we change the energy, if it feels like we're trying to force, we change the energy and we, we treat kids respectfully and we seek for other ways to, to gain cooperation. Um, but, but it's enormous difference and, and so much more effective. And, and when I, I'm, I'm often asked to talk kids into stuff. So I'm a, I'm a psychologist and people say, will you talk, tell my kid that he needs to take his medicine or literally take his medicine. And, and I said, I won't, I say, I won't talk, talk him into it, but I'll talk to him about it. And, it. and almost invariably, if I say, I don't want anybody to try to make you do this. I don't want anybody to try to use force. You're smart to figure, smart enough to figure this out. But I think you ought to try the medicine and see what it does. And if it doesn't help you, you don't take it. If it really helps you, you can take it or not. But, but I, I think it'd, it'd be fine for you to make an informed decision. Almost invariably, when force is taken off the table, Kids, kids can, can think clearly and they, they want their life to work so they, they, they make good decisions. And maybe we'll end there. You say, remember that kids have a brain in their heads and want their lives to work. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's our story and we're sticking to it. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a very good one. I think we should all stick to that. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I've been speaking with William, Bill, Sticksrud, and Ned Johnson about their new book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. So thank you both so much. Um, absolutely love the book. Going on my um, top three parenting books. And, and that's hard to get there. So. Uh, we, get, we get a bronze medal. I love it. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't say you were third. You might be, oh, you might be the top. At least a bronze yeah, medal. Yeah, yeah. That would be at least. I didn't, I didn't well, distinguish. Well, and I, I, it's, we're so, we, we did a, a really large podcast a couple of weeks ago. And it was clear that the interviewer hadn't read our book. Um, and it, was, it was our first book. And, um, and, I just, I'm so appreciative of how carefully you read the book and how thoughtful you are as a, as a person and as an interviewer. It's, it's really just a pleasure oh, thank you so to speak much. with you. It means a lot. Thank you. And you said it's such a, you're, you're, I mean, your, your, bio, your biography is so interesting with your early history. And, well, it's really great to talk to you. Yeah, it's so great to talk to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So much. okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.